Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and we praise you that you are a great God. Thank you that your heart is to save people to yourself. Thank you that it is because of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we do have access to the throne room of heaven. Lord, we pray that you would bless us today through your word. Heavenly Father, may, may we be blessed. May you teach us things that you want us to learn. May we go out of here feeling strengthened because of what you have to say to us through your word and through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, because he died and rose again for us. Mark 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat... A man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one can bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had just said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis just how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. It's an incredible passage. It's a remarkable passage for many different reasons. And I think the one and obvious thing that stands out is this whole area of demon possession. And before I start, and this isn't a point I'm actually going to make again, I just want to make one premise about demon possession. And, um, and it has two parts to it. Um, we don't seem to see very much of demon possession in, in, in our culture. We're, I think we're quite closeted by that. And um, the intelligentsia of uh, today would deem us have just thinking about things that we can see, things that are tangible, things that we can touch. This spiritual realm is something that we don't really want to look into. If it's not something I can see, then I don't want to believe it. Well, this is really where Satan actually starts attacking humanity. This is a very normal area of human life. And it is very, very sad. It is heartbreaking. It's also a very sensitive issue. It's really, really hard to read of this guy. And um, I've had the privilege of being able to work in Africa for sort of the past seven years in my summers. And you see this everywhere where Satan chooses to take over the mind of an individual. And it's very real and it's very horrible. 
But the second part of this premise is this. I don't want us to glorify demon possession. Okay? This is about Jesus Christ and what he does in the heart of the unbeliever. It is an incredible story. And it is amazing the transformation we see from this man who is so involved in these demons to the man who we see after Jesus has spoken to him. And that's what I want to focus on today. Is that okay? Wonderful. Um, let's, let's start. Um, I'm going to start with uh, the end of the passage. My exegesis is going to come from the end. And um, I, I, I hope that's okay. Um, it's actually important to note here where Jesus is before we get in, involved in what's going on. Where is this miracle taking place? We read from verse 1 that he's in this area called the Gerasenes. But it's in Mark's mentioned at the end of the passage where we get an intriguing insight into what this region is actually like. From this briefest of mentions in verse 20, almost in passing, we glean an awful lot about where Jesus actually is and what kind of community he is in by Mark's mention of the word Decapolis. Now this immediately stands out because we have a Greek name here, don't we? Decaten, Polis City, the area of the ten cities. But we're still in the land of Israel... So what is this about? Where's the Hebrew name for this territory? It's clear then, isn't it, that this is obviously a place that has been Greekified, or better still, it's been Gentilized. You see, when Jesus steps out of the boat in verse 1, he has stepped out on the eastern side of Lake Galilee. And this side was an area that had become incredibly Hellenistic and paganized. It was an area where Jews had completely given themselves over to Greek ideals and mythology. In fact, they were no longer Jewish by any recognition. As further proof, look what they have as animals. They have pigs, and they have lots of them. And as we know, in the Jewish community, you weren't allowed to have pigs. It was denied by the law. And here we are, people in the land of Israel, farming pigs. And there's lots of demons roaming about, as we see as well. These people obviously have nothing to do with the God of their youth. We see a corrupt, self-ostracized society of disaffected Jews giving themselves over to paganism and anti-Jewish sentiment. They don't even use their Hebrew names for their towns anymore. Their inherent sense of Jewish culture is nowhere to be seen. It is as if they are a completely different people. They are a completely different nation. And perhaps we marvel at this a little, but it is even more incredible to think that this is where Jesus is. He gets out of the boat of this pagan society and he delivers a demon-possessed man to himself. You see, this is what Jesus does. He goes where no one else bothers to go to. He goes further than anyone else would bother to go to. We read in the Bible the words of Jesus himself. I have not come for the well, but for the sick. He is a doctor and the sick need him, so obviously that is where he is going to be. So this brings me to my first point today. There is no place Jesus won't go to, to seek and to save the lost. Before we even get into the miracle itself, we see very clearly that this man, Jesus, is a man who will cross all barriers, who will break every taboo and violate every idiosyncrasy for the sake of saving the lost. And nothing will get in the way of him doing this. The association of these people in the Decapolis on those of the western and northern side of the lake was much the same as the sort of the Samaritans and the Jews. Okay, these guys were scum. And yet this is where Jesus, an upright Jew, chooses to go. But this isn't a one-off, is it? 
Let's remind ourselves of how many religious, social, economic, and political barriers Jesus breaks in his mission for the lost. He, a young Jewish man, speaks to a despised tax collector, an insane hermit, a Roman governor, a young boy, a housewife, a lawyer, a criminal, a fisherman, a poor widow, a Roman centurion, an adulterous woman, a sick woman, a group of women, a blind beggar, a leper, a young girl, a traitor, a paralyzed man, a mob of soldiers, a foreign woman, a sworn enemy, and a thief hanging on a cross. This is who Jesus chooses to associate with, the lost. Those who are like the, the people who live in the Decapolis, untouchable and condemned by society. You see, as we read stories of Jesus' own work within humanity, we see that this is a picture of how he works for us. Now, thousands of years later, he bothers to step out of the boat into my despised shell of a pagan life and seek me out. This is how Jesus works for me. This is how I can stand here and claim him as my own because I realize that Jesus went all that way to get me back. Don't we marvel that this is how far Jesus goes? But let's not forget that this is actually his mission. And so this is very normal of Jesus. This is not surprising of him. He is doing what he is sent on earth to do. Luke 19.10 reminds us that this is Jesus' day job. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. But you see, the more we look at this, this Jesus, the more we are reminded that this is not a new idea from God. It is, in fact, a very old story, long since been in action and long since talked about. Let's remind ourselves of where God's mission for lost souls began. And to do this, we have to take ourselves all the way back to Genesis 3. And as Adam and Eve spectacularly fail by doing the one thing they were warned not to, what are the very first words God utters? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Incredibly powerful words. Where are you? That's glorious. I believe in a God who does not abandon me. Sam, where are you? I want to know where you are. Why are you not where I am? I want you to be with me here. This is what God is saying in the garden. The very first word he utters are the product of his missionary heart. He goes out into the garden and looks for us. And this is what Jesus is doing right here on the edge of a lake in a rotten pagan town speaking to a madman. He is embodying the words of his father. Where are you? Because where you are, that is where I choose to be. You see, a person without Christ is as dead to him as these paganized ex-Jews were to the rest of Israel. I am unrecognizable as a human being without Christ, just as these ex-Jews were to the rest of Israel. Without Christ, I am not what I was meant to be. I was meant to be a person with this perfect relationship with the living God, and I blew it. I pitched my tent in a decapolis, and I am unrecognizable. I am dead in my transgressions and sins, as Ephesians tells us, and I am nowhere near my God. So he then does the unthinkable and goes to the furthest place that anyone could go to. He steps out of heaven and comes into earth. Further than that, he goes to the cross. Don't you see that's the furthest place anyone could go to for the lost? The cross. And the only person who was both eligible and willing to do that for mankind was Jesus himself. That's how far he goes. 
The cross is that place that Jesus willingly climbs out onto so that my soul may be counted free. That is how far Jesus goes. His destination for me is the cross. And it is in my sin and his death on the cross. That's where he meets me in all my filth and says, where are you? But let's move on. Let's actually get to the passage. Um, When we read the Gospels, as many of you know, it's particularly impossible to see what's really going on without looking sort of both sides of it. What's going on before and what's happening afterwards. So let's look at the immediate context. Let's be good Bible scholars and do that. Um, We've just come out of what one is Jesus' most profound and well-known parables, a really well-known parable, that of the four soils and the sower, um, followed by other seed-related topics focusing on the growth of the human in Christ. And then we get this incredible sidestep into the true life stories of Jesus, and we get this one where he is controlling the storm. And the very last words we read of chapter 4 are those of the disciples. And they say, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, I would say Mark 5 starts off by saying you haven't seen anything yet. You see, we are now moving into a period of life where Jesus starts showing his immense power. His ministry is as much as what he does as what he says. And here is a story of a mere glimpse into the kind of power that Jesus wields. And this is my second point. There is no power Jesus cannot overcome in his mission to seek and save the lost. Let's read verses, one, uh, verses 2 to 8 again and see what's going on here. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. This man is in a lot of trouble, isn't he? And the whole language of Mark here is incredibly dark. This crazy man out of his mind, clambering out of a graveyard on top of a hill, lumbering before Jesus. It reminds me of Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, you know, when the convict comes out after Pip. It's really dark and it's really scary. And this man is not only mad, but he's incredibly strong. No one can control him, no one can tie him up because this incredible power that this demon has over him. And as we read, we realize why. This man's name is Legion because we are many. This is the stuff of nightmares. A legion was the largest fighting force in the Roman army that encompassed anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. The merest mention of a Roman legion was enough to send whole countries quaking in fear. This is exactly the kind of idea that this name offers up. Now, can you imagine what the disciples were feeling like? Seeing this scene in the one place in Israel they really didn't want to be, next to a man who's already freaked them out by controlling the weather, doesn't even bear thinking about. But here is Jesus, this beacon of light in this dark, dark picture, in complete control of the situation, completely unswayed by what is going on. And we soon find out why this man and his demons are moving towards Jesus. It is because Jesus has spoken As Mark unravels this remarkable exposition on the life of Christ, we are beginning to see what he's doing. This Jesus is a powerful guy. And how does he wield this power? 
through his words. Jesus utters the words, come out of this man, you evil spirit, and in abject fear, these shackle-snapping, chain-tearing demons bow the knee before their greatest enemy because Jesus has spoken. We realize now that Jesus' words are different to others. They command authority. What he says will happen. And as soon as we realize that, we're right back in Genesis again. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was. God's word is powerful. It does stuff. It is a creative word, and it's a word of activity. And as we see God creating Genesis through his word, let there be, we see Jesus control the very storm we've just looked at through his word, quiet be still. And there the natural elements of his own creation, the very molecules of the physical world, bend and snap under the authority of his word. And here... Mark moves us on from Jesus' power over creation and shows that he has power over evil itself. The armies of Satan that inhabit this man have nowhere to go and so kneel terrified before this humble carpenter. And as they beg for mercy in verse 7, we see why. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God you won't torture me. These demons see Jesus for who he really is. This is the first time in Mark that we've heard anyone call Jesus by his real title. And it comes from the lips of a demon. We have no power over you because we know who you are, they're saying. You are Jesus, son of the most high God. There's nothing we can do about it. We're doomed before your presence. And it's only because of this attribute of Jesus that he is able to do what he does. You see, Jesus' word has immense power because he is the son of the most high. He is God. This is one of Mark's many God claims that Jesus allows us to see. And if he is God, then there is nothing that cannot and will not bow before him or do what he asks. Romans 14, 11, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, whether they love him or not. And our mission is to make sure that people know that. We want people bowing the knee while they have time. If you are here and you don't know this Jesus, this is your time to see this Jesus and say, that is who I want to love. I need to know him. I bow my knee now before it's too late. Even the demons will worship and fear him because this is Jesus Christ, God himself, son of the most high, and these demons know it. And this goes further. As we see the power of Jesus' words, we realize that he is the word. This takes us right back to John again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. You see, this isn't just a stupid Harry Potter-like story of good magic triumphing over bad magic and idiotic sentiment. It's nothing so trite. This is the Word of God himself, the most powerful being in and outside of creation, waging war with the armies of Satan in a spiritual battle we can only dream of, and all for the sake of the lost. But what do we get from this? How does it help us knowing this stuff? Because we see that the man Jesus, who will go to the most despicable of places to find us, has the power to actually do something about us when he meets us. It's all well and good having someone looking for me, but if they can't help me when they find me, frankly, what's the point? God isn't on a mission whereby he's seeking for the lost in the vain hope that when he finds someone, he might just have the right tools to save them. No, he looks out for us because he is the only one who can do anything about us. You see? Mark is saying one very profound thing here, and it's this. This power that rids this man of this legion of demons is the very same power that rids you of your sin and brings you to this Christ. Watch him. 
Look at him, Mark is saying. Are you sure there is not one situation this son of man cannot speak into and have complete authority over? No. Let's be very careful with how we read this. We know we suffer. We know things are tough. We know we pray and sometimes things don't happen. But Jesus is in supreme control. He will seek and he will save the lost on his God-ordained mission because he has the power to be able to carry out what that mission entails. That means clearing out my demons, my rubbish, turning around my wayward heart from one of stone to one of flesh and literally calling me out of the bondage of death into the realm of eternal life. Jesus has this power and he uses it on us. That's what Mark is saying. And again, we look to the cross. What's the point of Jesus dying if he wasn't Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High? I could die for the human race if I wanted to. That's quite an easy thing to say. But once I'm dead, once I get to that destination, there's nothing I can do for you. As Paul says in Romans, someone might possibly dare to die for a good person, but whilst we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. Whilst we are still barely human, Christ steps out of the boat and has the power to confront and destroy my sin. Christ has the power to change us at the cross. And how do we know this? How do we know that he is actually victorious on the cross? Because he's risen from the dead. You see where I'm getting at? Jesus goes to the cross, the most despicable of all destinations for me, and when he gets there, we find that he has the power to do something about my sin and death. This is my saviour. This is who God looks like. But before we move on, what does Jesus do with this demon? Well, the story takes an interesting turn at this point, doesn't it? Jesus has confronted the demon. The demon is in fear of Jesus, recognizing who he really is. And then they say this, send us into the pigs, allow us to go into them. And Jesus allows it. Mark uses very interesting language to describe Jesus' method of casting out the demons. He says in verse 13, he gave them permission. Another sign of Jesus' incredible power over the situation. They have to ask Jesus themselves to be cast out. Complete authority. There's not even any fight, really. There's no assumption that Jesus would do anything else but cast these demons out. The question that is often asked at this point is, does Jesus show a weakness by giving into the demons' demands? Not at all. For starters, the fact they ask permission is proof enough of his power. But also, Jesus is, I think, doing something very clever. He's showing us a glimpse of what is yet to happen. Why does he send them in the pigs and not to hell, for example? Because judgment has not yet come. There will be a day in the future when Christ will say, enough is enough. And on that day, we will see heaven and earth torn up and every man, woman, and child walking before the throne room of heaven under God's perfect judgment. But also we will see these very demons vanquished fully and finally as Satan is done away with, no longer allowed to roam the earth to torment humanity and to destroy the believer. You see, Jesus, despite what he shows here, has yet to reveal his full power and authority, which is scary. We see perfectly his power on the cross and then ultimately at his second coming. There is no place Jesus will not go and there is no power Jesus cannot overcome when he battles for the lost soul. And this brings me to my third point. There is no person too lost for Jesus. There is no person where he thinks, actually, I I can't go that far. Look at this man. Look at where he lives. Look at how he's treated. He is good for nothing than to sit and scream and rot his miserable existence away. But he is good enough for God to want to pursue him. What an unbelievable statement. 
Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that any of us are good enough for God. The opposite is true. None of us is good enough for God. But God deems this fallen humanity as something worth fighting for. And it is purely out of his love for us. It is because we are not good enough for God that he bothers to do this. Jesus bothers to reveal himself. Jesus bothers to reveal who he is through his words. And Jesus bothers to die the most excruciating death for me because I can't do anything about my lostness. What an inconvenience for the Son of God. And yet he deems me worth dying for, and so he finds it very convenient. And let's look at what this, who this man is, this man that Jesus saves. Let's look at him carefully. Here is a man who is schizophrenic from his thousands of demons inhabiting his person. He is a man who lives among the dead. He revels in his screaming wolf-like existence. He slowly mutilates his body. But here is a man who Jesus loves with all his heart. A man who needs forgiveness and who needs a saviour. No one else would give this man a snowball's chance. Jesus does. And as we see, Jesus isn't half-hearted with the way he deals with this man. Look at the final product. Verses 14 and 17. They saw the man uh, possessed, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. The change in his man is so stark. How can this be? Or indeed, the question the townspeople are probably asking, who wields such power? Or rather, who is this man? Even the demons obey him. Their reaction to Christ's work in the unbeliever is one of repulsion and fear. They beg him to leave. This pagan town, mired in the depths of sin, can't stand the presence or the work of the Christ, just as the demons themselves can't stand his voice. And yet, does Jesus just leave them to their own devices? No. What does he say to this new creature who has now been given eternal life? Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Jesus has not only created a new man, you see, he's created a new witness. His mission is not only to seek and save the lost, but then to get others to talk about that mission. He commissions those he calls, he calls those he loves, and he loves those who are lost. Here, you see, right at the beginning of Mark chapter 5, we have the entire sweep of Jesus' mission wrapped up in one life of a madman. And for all those who know Jesus, don't you see that this is our mission as well? Zoom on a couple of years and we see the risen Lord Jesus speaking to his bewildered disciples in Matthew 28. And he says this, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, so you go and make disciples of all nations. As we see his authority displayed in this chapter, so we take hold of this and go and make disciples. Jesus' mission is our mission. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. What do we do once we have been saved by this incredible power? We go and seek out and find the lost, ever mindful that no one is beyond saving. We do indeed go about our Father's business. And as we look at this story, I want us to go over two things. One is this, we are called to go out and to seek the lost, but we are not called to save the lost. Remember, as we've seen, only Jesus has that power. But we have his word, the Bible, we have the power of his resurrection, and we merely need to utter the name of Jesus and demons flee. He gives us access to his incredible power because we have become the body of Christ himself. But remember this, when we speak to those who don't know Jesus, we merely talk as best we can of what we know. And the fear of failing in our evangelism drops from our shoulders as we realize that Christ does all the work of saving. 
This man, Legion, would not be the person high up on my possibilities for heavens list. And we actually have them, don't we? That's why you're all laughing. We actually have that person certainly won't become a Christian. I don't think I'll bother. Bother. I dare you. The one person you know well who you may think there is no hope for. Remember, Jesus loves them and desires them for himself. Invite them to things. Ask to read the Bible with them. Really put yourself out of your way. Secondly, remember who you were before Christ found you. Just as these people in the Decapolis were unrecognizable to the Jews, and just as Legion was unrecognizable as a human being, so we are unrecognizable from the life we were meant to live in our relationship with God. That is to say, therefore, we are all the more human because we are found by God and brought back to life, back to the life that God desires that all may have. Let's be careful that we don't pitch our tents in the Decapolis, but to live life being convinced that this man with the power that he holds in the brim of his lips is the man who loves me and therefore who can hold me and who keeps me. He is the man who saved me and who has the power to do the same to others as I walk with him in my mission to seek the lost. Allow me to end with an illustration. There's a woman I used to teach who bought a violin off eBay. Now, I would never suggest anyone buy a violin off eBay. But she went along with it anyway. All she had to look at was a picture on a screen and a description of what it was like. She couldn't touch it, she couldn't play it, she couldn't really see it properly. So when this instrument arrived through the post a week later, having been shipped around the globe from the US, she opened the case with excited expectation, and sitting in the bottom of the case, she found the most battered, filthy-looking violin you've ever seen. It was covered in dust. Its strings were hanging loose from the fingerboard, whilst the bridge had long since snapped and was lying in half to the side, along with the sound post, which had fallen out of the sound holes. And the bow hung above it with dirty, frayed horsehair wrapped unceremoniously around a warped wooden stick. Demoralized but unperturbed, she picked out this shell of an instrument, blew the rosin dust off the body and picked out the chalk from the peg holes. She picked up the soundpost, she fitted it into the body of the violin. She unraveled the strings and fixed them to their pegs. She sent the bow away to be rehaired and shaped. And finally, she fixed a new bridge onto the body, lifting the strings upward as they tightened into tune. She finally lifted the instrument into place and started playing. And the richest, fullest, most incredible sound resonated out of this battered old instrument as she realized for the first time that what she had gained was not something that was worthless, but something that was priceless. That violin was meant to be played. That's what it was created for. It wasn't fit for playing until someone had saved it and restored it. You are meant to be in perfect relationship with the God of creation. That's what you've been created for. That's what we see here in Mark, a man who was meant to glorify God of creation and be in relationship with him. Listen to the author's rhetoric again about this man. He is dressed and he is in his right mind. Dignity is restored. The shame of nakedness is covered up. This priceless individual restored to what he was always meant to be. And this is how the true God works. In the garden in Genesis 3, God sacrifices the animal so that Adam and Eve may be covered up. Here in Mark 5, Jesus dresses this lost individual and clothes and restores him to dignity. And on the cross, Christ allows his goodness to be placed on me as I am wrapped in the garments of his righteousness, allowing me to walk unhindered by my past into the glory of his future. If you do not know this Jesus Christ, I commend him to you.
Get to know him. This is someone who is very bothered about you. Wherever you are, however you're feeling, whatever you think you've done, this is the Jesus who can work in the most awful of circumstances. He desires to be with you. He wants you to be made into that priceless instrument, an instrument in the master's hands. That is what we are as Christians. And am I really convinced that God can do this for you? Yes, because he says those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no place he does not go to, no power he cannot overcome. And you cannot be so bad as to not allow Jesus to come and work in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much that you are uh, this Jesus. Heavenly Father God, thank you that you are this God. Thank you that you save us, you seek us out. Thank you that you desire that all men may come into you. Heavenly Father, we we pray for those of us who know you, Lord, that we would be convicted to go out and to spread this incredible good news, the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only man who can do anything about anyone's lostness. Heavenly Father, may we be a praying people. May we be actively seeking out, talking to people about Jesus. Lord, for those of us who don't know you, I just pray that you would uh, open your word to us and that you would be revealing yourself fully. Lord, I pray that people who have a problem with this, that they would have their minds open to the gospel, open to Jesus, that you would be working through the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for who you are. We thank you very much for what you have done. And Lord, we do give you all the glory this morning. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.